ladies, I called my gardener friend Sandy again this week, and this time I asked her for pictures of seeds, and on the screen is what she said to me. If we were to play the game Name That Seed, I'm sure that many of these Arkansas and Oklahoma women in the crowd could probably name every single one of the 15 seeds in this picture on the screen. So for right now, let's just look at the first three. Those are probably the easy ones, and maybe everybody who planted a seed in a little styrofoam cup in potting soil in, in preschool or kindergarten can even recognize some of these. They're probably easily recognizable. So the first one that I've labeled number one, what is that? It's a sunflower seed. And number two, what is that? It's a pumpkin seed. And number three is corn. Very good, ladies. You got them all. Congratulations. If I were given a prize, I'd have to give out one to all of you. If we took those seeds and poked them in the ground and we waited a few months, you would expect to see a pumpkin where you planted the pumpkin seed. You would expect to see a sunflower grow up where you planted seed number two and an ear of corn in the little hole where you planted seed number three. Every gardener knows, of course, that you don't plant a pumpkin seed and then expect to get a watermelon. And you don't plant corn and expect to grow tomatoes. Because the truth is, in gardening, is that you reap what you sow. And the same is absolutely true for our personal and our spiritual lives as well. Galatians 6-7 says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh... From the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Last week, we unpacked the tragic events that unfolded and ensued following David's sin with Bathsheba. We took note in, that it was amazing that it began with idleness and laziness. And, and then it spiraled downward all the way to adultery and to murder. Thankfully, we celebrate that God used Nathan. Nathan was obedient and went where God sent him. And David received that message. He was humble enough to repent, and he was forgiven, and his relationship with God was restored. Well, this week, we're going to see, though, that there were still very significant consequences that would come from that sin. We're going to drill down as we unpack 2 Samuel 13 and 14, where we begin to see the seeds of David's sin take root and yield consequences to David personally, but to his extended family as well. Last week, we looked at Psalm 32. We took a peek into David's diary to gain insight into his heart of repentance following that time of sin. So today I want to look at the second psalm that David wrote during this era in his life. We're going to peek into David's diary, if you will. And I would like as we begin to look at some of the words that he wrote that are recorded for us in Psalm 51. If you would stand with me as you are able, in honor of God's word, I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Psalm 51 just to get an understanding, to put ourselves in the place where David was at this time, to understand that he had truly been repentant and he was fully restored. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Uh, ladies, I'm reading from the NIV. In the Holman Study Bible, transgression says rebellion. And that's really what sin is. It's rebellion against God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray as we begin. Father, thank you for the timeless truth of your word. Thank you that scripture is true, that you have recorded on the pages of this wonderful book the lives of real people, men and women who loved you and worshiped you and walked with you, but also in the case of David, a man whose sin is there on the pages of scripture for us to see and learn from. Father, I pray that this wouldn't just read like a a modern-day novel to us, that we wouldn't just chase the storyline, but that everything that we're studying today would resonate in our hearts, that we would be convicted to see ourselves in this story, to learn from this, to heed the warnings that David's life brings to us, and to make those course corrections, to follow in obedience to you. Thank you that you are a good God and a great God, and we pray that you would be glorified in what we learn today and how we choose to apply that to our lives. All for your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray, and amen. David's repentance was genuine. We read those words in Psalm 51 that prove that he had confessed his sin. He acknowledged that his transgression, that his rebellion was against God. And we see here really on these, these words in Scripture the grief that he experienced, the depth of his grief over his sin. He owned his sin. He confessed it. He repented. And remember, this is the man after God's own heart. He was restored to full fellowship with God. He confessed and God forgave him. This man, after his sin with Bathsheba, would continue to write psalms, to worship God, to serve God, to fight battles for God, to live for God. But his sin brought grave consequences to his life. David, Nathan had delivered the verdict from God when he confronted David in, in 2 Samuel 12 that we looked at last week. Nathan gave the message, David, you were forgiven. Your sin is taken away, but there will still be consequences. And Nathan listed four of those. Very prophetic, words from God. The sword will never depart from your house, David. There will be calamity in your household, David. Your wives will be given to the one close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. We're going to see that come to fruition later. And the son born to you will die. Serious, serious consequences for gross sin that had been committed. Rebellion against God. You know, our sin rarely, if ever, affects just us. What we do in secret is never really secret. And it, it brings up about that fruit, just like a seed planted in the ground. That sin ripples out and it affects not just us, but our family, our friends, our neighbors. And really, even things that we see happening in society as a whole are a reflection of our collective sin that grows and it all mingles together and creates this sad mess. As we point a, a finger at David and as we sigh deeply and maybe shake our heads, 
we also need to do some self-evaluation to consider how our own individual choices have sown seeds that bring a harvest into our lives and into the lives of our families that we did not want, that we did not anticipate, and that we foolishly did not foresee and never wanted to have happen. We know David repented. We know that he was restored. We know that he was completely forgiven. And so we might ask, why did God still allow all this trouble to come? Why did God allow this? Couldn't God have stopped it? Well, we live in a fallen world. But let me just give you a couple of examples to think about when we think about the consequences of sin that come. If one of us has an alcohol problem, and let's say that we choose to drink and drive, and we end up wrapping our car around a tree, end up in the hospital, horrible medical issues, maybe even lose a leg. And then finally, through that horrific circumstance, we go to AA. We get clean and sober. We even come to know Jesus, turn our life around. But is that leg going to grow back? Is the loss of that leg not a consequence of the choice that was made to abuse alcohol and to drive while drinking? A few years ago, I was on a mission trip to the, and was privileged to go into the state women's prison and, and bring a, a message of hope and salvation to the women there. We got to go and be part of a barracks that included a lot of women that had found Jesus in prison through that prison ministry. I met sisters in Christ that you and I, because we know Jesus, will get to spend eternity with. These are women of God who shine for Jesus. Women who sing with the joy of the Lord on their faces, radiant by knowing him and his love. They found Jesus in prison. One woman that I met had killed her own mother. Another woman had committed murder by hire. Many had committed murder. Their stories were very sad. The consequences of their sin means that, that they will spend the rest of their earthly life in prison. They are grateful for having gone to prison because it's changed their destiny for eternity. These women know Christ. They are new creations. They are new beings in Christ, but yet they will be incarcerated the rest of their lives. They've been set free spiritually, but being a new creation in Christ doesn't mean that they don't have to pay their debt to society. Even when we, we have a wound on an arm or a leg and we have a scratch and we apply ointment and that, that, that heals or we maybe get stitches, we know later there's a scar that is left behind. The world tells us we know practically and logically there are consequences to the choices that we make. Sin brings tragedy into our lives. Sometimes it's our sin. It's the choices we personally made. But sometimes it's the sin that others have done that brings hurt and pain to us. And some of you have experienced that horrific news. Some of the struggles that you experience are because of no fault of your own, but because of the consequences of other sin and what, that has, happened to you, what has happened to you. We live in a, in a fallen world. You know, we don't pop a sunflower seed into the ground today and expect to have a bouquet of flowers on the table tomorrow. Those seeds, they take time to grow. They take time to mature, time to bear fruit. The consequences of David's sin took years to germinate and bear fruit. When we think about all the things that transpired in our story, we see the years that took place, two years that, that uh, Tamar had to be quiet, 
three years that Absalom was in Geshur. Two years he was under house arrest. Just take note as you go back and read those couple of chapters. There were years that took place for all these events that were sitting down and reading in one setting. But all these things unfolded in the course of time. Let's remind ourselves as we get started about the family tree that we're talking about here. David had eight wives. Eight besides all of his concubines. And, and then he had children with all of these women. And though, though having multiple wives was permitted in the Old Testament, it was not what God had deemed best. It wasn't part of God's perfect plan. Genesis 2 makes it very clear that God's idea was for marriage to be a holy, committed union between a man and a woman. One man and one woman. Long before David sinned with Bathsheba that we studied last week, his accumulation of all these wives, adding them to his harem like, like trophies, that choice way back then, long before Bathsheba, began to sow the seeds of dysfunction and, and tension in his family. David's wives and the children that each bore to him are shown here on the screen. The ones that are a particular note for our study today are Ahinoam, who was his second wife. Remember, his first wife was Michael, the daughter of Saul. And I, I'm sure I'm not pr pronouncing these names correctly. Michael had no children. And then his second wife, Ahinoam, she bore uh, David his firstborn son, Amnon. And Amnon, as the firstborn, would be the heir to the throne. Then there was Abigail. We, we studied Abigail in 1 Samuel. We love her. She had a son named Keliab. We're not sure if he died young, but he's, he's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, so he, he may have died and is no longer relevant. And then next is his wife, Makah. She was a princess. Her father was a king, and we're going to read about that. We're going to mention that here in a little bit. But she bore him two children, Absalom, who was described as tall, dark, and handsome in Scripture with that lovely flowing hair. He would definitely have been a, a rock star, literally or figuratively, probably in any time in, in history. And then the only daughter that is mentioned is Tamar. Absalom and Tamar were full-blooded brother and sister. Amnon was their half-brother. And then later on down, of course, there's Bathsheba, his last wife, and the one that would later bear him Solomon as well as other sons. So with this harem of all these sister wives... How could it not? Knowing, knowing ourselves as women and knowing our own human nature, how could a situation like this, eight wives and all these children, how could that not bring about animosity and jealousy and bitterness and envy? Chapter 13 opens with the phrase, in the course of time. And in the course of time, truly, David's children are growing up. And in this chapter, we, we uh, begin to see some of the tragedy that's going to unfold and come to this very dysfunctional family as those seeds take root and begin to bear fruit. We can almost call this as Jerusalem turns. It, it reads more like a soap opera than a book from the Bible when you think about it. First of all, some of the, the highlights of what's happening in these couple chapters, Amnon lusts for his half-sister Tamar. Even, um, it, it's just shameful, the, 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 the longing for a sister that's his blood relative. And then even we see that the extended family is tainted by all the backbiting and the lies and the treachery because it's his cousin, um, his friend Jonadab, who is the son of David's brother, that cooks up the scheme for Amnon to rape his own sister to satisfy his lust. 
Amnon lies to his father. He rapes Tamar. And then his shame so overwhelms him that he hates her even more than he loved slash lusted after her. I have a hard time calling it love because I don't think it was love. I think it was just pure lust. He wanted her. He saw her. He lusted after her. And then after he had her, just the sight of her reminded him of his own sin. Absalom is the one that Tamar runs to. She goes to her brother. How interesting, she goes to her brother and not her father. She goes to her brother Absalom. And what does he tell her to do? Oh, keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. How shameful. And isn't that often the thing that happens in life today? At the table I sat in on today, one of the ladies said, how similar that is to what happens today, that the woman who has been abused is told to be quiet. She's made to feel even more shame as no one comes to defend her. Absalom says, don't tell. Keep it a secret. So rather than plead her case or step up and, and, and defend her and try to make this right, he, he sort of almost, I wonder, seems to leverage this situation for his own gain. He's plotting his revenge to kill Amnon. And I wonder if also underlying all that is sort of furthering his own desire and plans to be king one day. And he sees this as an opportunity to sort of remove Amnon from the situation. Clearly, David's family is a mess. And it's all really rooted in sexual sin. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was a failure as a father. He failed to show real love to his children. He failed to know what was going on under his own roof. Or if he did, he failed to do anything about it. He failed to protect his precious daughter Tamar. She is the child, she's the one person in this story who seems to act unselfishly and godly in the events that unfold in these chapters this week that we studied. He failed to discipline his children, to hold them accountable, to use his own mistakes to talk to them about the danger and the consequences that sin brings. I wonder if David's passivity as a parent was the result of laziness? He, he just didn't want to deal with it? Was it shame? He knew he had no credibility to talk to his boys about sexual sin when he had a harem and he had committed adultery and even murder. Is he just distracted and busy by all the responsibilities of being king? Is work an excuse for failing to fulfill your parental duty? Was it a prayer problem? Did David fail to pray for his children? Was it a love problem? Did David truly love his children? Maybe it was a combination of all of those things. But whatever the case, I want to use this week's lecture to talk about parenting. We've learned much from David about having a strong faith and about trusting God and glorifying God and praising God. But this week, David's mess is going to bring a message of caution for us. I have 10 principles for parenting that I believe we can glean from what David did wrong or what David failed to do. But before we begin, I want to just hit a couple of what I am going to share as foundational truths, parenting points that I want to make very clear from the onset. Some of you in this room have already raised your children, and you can look back and, and feel a sense of regret, and I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do here. So I want to hit on some truths right as foundational before we jump in. And number one is the truth that God has no grandchildren. Okay? God has no grandchildren. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We individually must come before God. We are not covered by the faithfulness of our mama or our daddy or our grandparents or our great-grandparents. Our spiritual heritage will not matter. 
And our children must come to God on their own, solely, completely on their own before God. We will all give an account. Thankfully, we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, only Jesus. So it's not on you. Your children will be held accountable for the light that they have been given. If we know him, and if your children know him, then we can approach the day of judgment with confident assurance only because of Jesus Christ. Number two, there are no formulas for parenting. There are no formulas. You know, I used to claim this verse from over in Proverbs as sort of a promise and assume it meant something that I really don't think it means. Proverbs uh, 22.6 says this, and this is the King James Version. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. As a young mom, I just sort of took that as a formula. If I do this, then that's going to be the guarantee. If I do this, then this is going to happen. If I train them upright, if I have them at church, if I teach them the word, if I pray for them, if I am training up my children, then they are never going to walk away from God. And in my, in my foolishness, in my, my young not knowing, I assume that's what that verse meant. Since that time, I've come to realize that what I really believe it means, as I've gotten some additional teaching, is that if we train up our children to know the truth, they can't get away from the truth. It doesn't mean that they don't still have free will, because we know we all have free will. They can still choose to obey it or disobey it, but if that truth is in their heart and that truth is in their mind, they can't erase it. We can't erase what is in our minds. We can't just delete those files. They are going to know the truth. And we can always pray that they will hear God's voice. And even as they are choosing to walk in sin, the Holy Spirit can bring that scripture to mind. They can hear the words of God Almighty. It may even sound like their mama's voice as she read scripture to them and taught them. But they can't get away from the truth. The hound of heaven will will seek them out. And the truth that you have faithfully instilled there will come to them. They cannot get away from it. So we train them up and we trust the rest with God. But there are no formulas for us. Number three, you are not their Holy Spirit and you are not Jesus to them. Ladies, I see a lot of moms take on a lot of illegitimate guilt for their failings and their shortcomings. I've done it myself. And I have a wise and godly husband that says, that's a lie. Do not believe that. You were a good mom. Ladies, let me say the thing, same thing to you. You are not perfect. Being a mother doesn't mean that you are perfect. If it were, none of us would qualify to be moms. Only God is perfect. So going along with that then, we can also say that we are all on our own faith journey. We do the best we can with what we know at the time. How many times I've gone back and prayed, Oh, Lord, if you would just turn back the hands of time, I would do so many things differently. And it, it wasn't an audible voice, but in my heart of hearts, I sort of feel like I heard the Lord saying, Laura, even if I would turn back the hands of time, you wouldn't do it any differently because you wouldn't know any better. You see, ladies, life is our classroom. It's the living that brings the learning. We are a work in process ourselves on our own faith journey, even as we are trying to raise up our children. The life that we learn is the same life we live. We don't have the luxury of living a life that we learned from and then going back living it knowing what we already know. You are a grown-up sinner raising little sinners, but we're all thankfully covered by the grace of God. And then number five, there are no guarantees. You can do everything right. 
You can raise 10 children exactly the same, and perhaps nine will grow up and love and serve Jesus. They'll be responsible, honorable citizens. And then there, you may have that one that's just making different choices. That one may be working on his or her testimony. Okay? Don't give up. His or her story is still unfolding. If they're all adults, most likely your job now is primarily to just shut up and pray. There's not a lot that you can do if they're already adults. But if you still have little ones, or if you're a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother who is in a position to influence children, I want to unpack 10 parenting principles that I believe we can glean from David's lousy example. Anybody remember Late Night with David Letterman? I rarely stayed up that late, but I always got a kick or I would even Google to find out what his top 10 list was. So if I was going to stay up and watch, it would only be for the top 10 list. Well, this week we're going to be doing our own top 10 list, and I'm calling it Top 10 Ways to Fail as a Parent. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek look at some parenting truths here. Number 10, don't love their daddy. Legendary basketball coach and man of God, John Wooden, once said this. The best thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Now, we're going to tweak that a little bit and say the best thing a mother can do for her children is to love their father. I give all credit to women that are raising children in single-parent homes, and I applaud you, and I pray for you, and I encourage you. But we know that God's very best, of course, is to have children raised in a family with a mother and a father. And so... As we tweak this and we realize that if we want to, if you are in a, a, a healthy marriage and you have a husband and you're raising children, I think John Wooden offers a lot of advice for all of us that loving the father of our children sets a great example for our children. Commitment is the cement of marriage. Kevin and I will celebrate 35 years of marriage in January of, the, of 2020. There are women in this room that have been married way longer than me but I'm guessing that every one of them would agree with me in saying it's not always about feeling in love. It's not always about emotions and warm fuzzies. Every day isn't flowers and candy and, and all that honeymoon newlywed stuff. Some days, many days, it's about commitment. It's about choosing to love the one you are with. Uh, when I mentor women and they tell me he's not the man I married, I'm like, well, of course he's not, and you're not the woman he married either. Life should change us. I hope I'm not the same woman that I was 35 years ago or 30 years ago. We're all on a journey. And as we choose to honor the vows that we made, as we choose to support our man, to encourage him and build him up, to be thankful for him, to pray for him, to never, ever speak ill of him to your children. Honor and respect his authority in front of your children. Never allow the word divorce to be part of your vocabulary. Let your children know that you are committed to each other, and that will bring security to their lives. David's collection of wives, uh, building up his harem, having children with each, surely brought a lot of insecurity as each new wife and each new child was brought in to that dysfunctional family. It, it, it had to lead to some insecurity. The, the challenge, of course, and the commitment to your husband, what I'm sharing assumes a healthy marriage. I would never, ever, just as a little timeout footnote here, never encourage a woman to stay in an abusive relationship. You have to protect yourself and your children. So this is a situation that I'm talking about where you are physically safe. Okay, number nine, 
shirk your discipline duty. If you want to fail as a parent, shirk your, your discipline duty. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Well, if God, the perfect, holy, heavenly Father, loves us enough to discipline us, if he disciplines his own children, then surely if we aspire to be good parents who truly love our children, then we too will discipline them. David failed to reign in his children. He failed to address Amnon's sin. He failed to address Absalom's sin. And it would eventually lead to the death of both of his sons. When we fail to discipline our children, it may not lead to their physical death, but to death to relationships and opportunities and ministries. If we love them, we must discipline them. And we have to let them know that we're not big, fat liars. You and I have all been behind those women in the line at Walmart where she keeps saying over and over, if you don't, I'm gonna. If you don't, I'm gonna. And I know she's not gonna. And the lady doing the checking out knows she's not gonna. And her children know she's not gonna. So if you're not gonna do it, don't say you are. Because all you're doing is letting your kids know that you're a liar. And they can just keep on keeping on. Do what you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do and mean what you say. Don't shirk your discipline duty. If you are the mommy and you are doing it right, they will not like you every minute of the day. Doling out discipline means some days you will be called the mean mommy. The mean mommy. And let that be a badge of honor. Because you can be their friend when they grow up. Right now, just be the mom. Love them enough to do your job and discipline them when you need to. Number eight, don't protect them. Our children are innocent and they're vulnerable. Their brains are not fully developed. Uh, I called my friend Melissa, the best, uh, a, a nurse this week, and I asked her, what, at what age do children's brains fully develop? And she told me it was age 20. And so what that tells me, age 20, now we all know why we made such foolish mistakes you know, when we were still teenagers. And so that means that their decision-making and their judgment is not fully functioning while they're young. And so it's our job to keep them protected and keep them safe. Safety in the 21st century is even more challenging because it also includes safety from what we allow to enter their minds through technology. What we permit our children to see on television, on a smartphone, in a movie, because you can't unsee something after you've seen it. Once it's in your mind, it is there. Please monitor what your children are watching. Make good decisions to protect your children. We talk to them about stranger danger in the parks and at the mall and in the stores and on the street. You would never, ever open up the front door and just wave down a man out there on the sidewalk and say, hey, would you come in and watch my kids while I clean out a closet or make dinner? You would never look for a babysitter from a perfect stranger, but yet it's what we do when we hand them our phone. Here, entertain yourself while I go make dinner. Be careful, be responsible to protect your children. David failed to protect his daughter. Tamar was an innocent victim in all this mess. She proved herself to be the most righteous, really, of anyone mentioned in this week's text. She not only pleaded with Amnon for herself, she was concerned about his sin and what this would do to him. And she even was willing to offer herself as a living sacrifice. It reminds me of Romans 12.1. She offered herself to him in marriage to prevent this violation of God's law. 
How ironic that David would have written these words, would write these words later in 2 Samuel. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. David praised God for being his fortress, his deliverer, his refuge, his shield, but he failed to be all those things for his own daughter. Mommies, protect your children. Number seven, have no communication. God laid out a clear mandate for us to talk to our children. Called the Jewish Shema, over in Deuteronomy 6, we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. We need to talk to our children as we are at home, as we drive around, as we get up in the morning, as we eat dinner, as we lay down at night. We need to be fully present when we do. How sad it is to be out at a restaurant today, society, in today's society. And you'll see a family out to dinner and there they are. Mom and dad on their phone and the kids just kind of doing whatever. When you are with your children, choose to be fully present with those that you love and are responsible for. Redeem that time. Make the most of those opportunities. I love what my friend Kathy's brother uh, does with his adult children. Uh, when they go out to eat, even with his adult children, he has a little rule that everybody has to put their phone in the middle of the table. And after they finish eating... Whoever reaches for the phone first also gets to pay the bill. <laughs> I love that. David did not talk to his children. I think it was clear that Absalom was crying out for attention. I think Absalom wanted his dad to man up and to be the dad. I think he wanted his dad to deal with his brother Amnon's sin against his sister Tamar. I think he wanted him to be the father in the family. Ladies, we need to communicate with our children. We need to talk to them. We need to, to share life with them. Number six, reward their whining. This is kind of a personal pet peeve for me, so I had to put it in there. Um, I just, I just would not tolerate it with my children. We all have a thing that's our thing, and this was kind of mine. If they whined, it was just a guarantee they were not going to get what they, what they asked for. We had a saying in our house, whiners get nothing. I, I shamelessly also stole that from my friend Kathy, uh, who detested whining as much as me. If we indulge the whining, our children are going to be trained uh, to lose respect for us. They're going to... Uh, really lose respect for anyone on authority, and we're teaching them that if they don't get what they want the first time, to keep whining until they do. Did you notice how David first seemed reluctant, reluctant to send Amnon to go with Absalom to the sheep shearing event? He had to know that he had, he had to know that there was this cold war going on. When two of your children don't speak for two years, you have to know it. And so those two were estranged. And, and he even asked Absalom, well, why? why? Why do you want him to go? 2 Samuel 13, 26 and 27 tells us, um, the king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. That urging, I translate that as whining. When, when David gave in to the whining, it failed to dig a little deeper, to pursue the question, to ask why, what's going on here, what are you up to? What happened is, 
That led to the murder of Amnon by his brother Absalom. Tragic results. Number five, never apologize. Never apologize. If you are an NCIS fan, you've probably heard Leroy Jethro Gibbs say, never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. Well, it's actually a sign of humility with all apologies to uh, Leroy. The refusal to apologize is nothing but pride. When we apologize to our children, we model to them what to do when they get it wrong. We set a godly example to them. We, we demonstrate that we are humble enough to acknowledge when we are wrong. It will make them love us more. It will equip them with what they need to do when they get it wrong. Hopefully, there are many examples of us getting it right before our children, but even when we get it wrong, we can always apologize and seek their forgiveness as well as the forgiveness of the Lord. Our failure to apologize even hinders our worship. We're told in Matthew, for example, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you or your child has something against you, we might add, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. Keep those short accounts. Be quick to apologize, even if it is to your children. We need to keep nothing between ourselves and others. Unconfessed sin, failing to own the hurt we cause others, can damage relationships. We, when we apologize to our children, we model to them what we do when they hurt someone. We show them what real humility and restoration looks like. Nowhere do we see David apologizing to his children for his failure to protect them or to be there for them or his failure to teach them. Number four, hide your junk. Let your messes become your message. Be open to your children about your mistakes. All of those shoulda, coulda, wouldas what you regret, what you would do differently if you could start over. How different, I wonder, would Amnon and Absalom's lives have, could have been had David taken the time for some father-son time to talk candidly to them about his own sexual sin, his regrets, and the mistakes that he had made. Yes, it's embarrassing. Yes, it's awkward. But it's also redemptive. It, it, it's a way for God to truly bring beauty from ashes and to work for good some of the greatest regrets of our lives. Number three, never pray for them or with them. We know that James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and I think we can also therefore assume that the prayer of a righteous woman and a righteous mom is powerful and effective. Through prayer, you have the privilege to bring the name of your child before the one who knows them best and loves them most. Take the time. Make the time to pray for them, to pray God's blessings. Ask God to give you insight into their future and his plans for them so you can help prepare them for that. Pray that they will be caught when they are guilty and pray that you would have discernment and wisdom to deal with that sin and discipline in a way that is restorative. Pray that they would choose the right friends. Pray that they would speak up for the truth. Pray that they would remain pure until marriage and, and wait on God's timing for the right mate. Pray that they would be generous. Pray that they would have a strong work ethic. Pray that they would love God and love his word. That they would call on Jesus for salvation at a young age and never look back. Pray scripture over them. Pray for them and pray with them. Number two, if you want to fail as a parent, never teach them the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God's word has to be the source of all we teach our children. 
It's the absolute source of truth. It's where we learn about God himself. Help your children to know it, to memorize it, to learn it, to obey it, to revere it, to live it, and to love it. Pray it over them. Let the word do the work when you discipline. Show them a passage of scripture that addresses their sin. Don't let them think this is just mommy's rules. This is what, these are God's rules. This comes from God's book. Let them see that God's word is your authority for everything that you believe and everything that you teach. Don't neglect God's word in your children's upbringing. And number one, never tell them that you love them. It's important to tell them and it's important to show them. No matter how many mistakes I made as a mom, and believe me, I made a lot of them. No matter how many times I disciplined in anger, failed to be all that my children needed, failed to respond in a godly way, no matter what, my kids know, I believe then and now, that I love them. I told them that. I tried to live in a way that they knew that. I think more than anything, Absalom wanted to know that his dad loved him. Really, I think he longed to have a relationship with his dad. 2 Samuel 13.37 tells us that David mourned for his son while he was with his grandfather. I'm not quite sure from that passage if he was mourning the death of Amnon or mourning that he was estranged from Absalom who would run off to be with his granddaddy, the king, in Geshur. He was hiding out there. Three years go, go by. See, there's a lot of time in this passage that goes by. Three years he went without seeing the face of his son. And the scripture tells us that David longed for him, but he just couldn't bring himself to go to him or send for him. And finally, it's Joab that intercedes and gets Absalom home. But then look what happens. Look what happens when finally Absalom comes home. Joab went to Geshur, brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, but the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. No forgiveness, no restoration, no apology, no love, no making everything right. David held out on Absalom. He held out on Tamar. He did not express his love to him when he could. During this time, Absalom even has children. Scripture tells us three sons and a daughter are born during this time. And still David doesn't go to him. I can't imagine being so angry with my child that I wouldn't want to go and see my grandchildren. Absalom finally acts up. He lights a fire in Joab's field. Now, if that's not clearly crying out for attention, what is? He's a grown-up man, but he's acting like a little boy. He wants his dad. He finally gets his meeting, but it's a stilted sort of mechanical meeting. It, It sounds more like, reads more like the king to a servant than a father to a son. Love your children. Let them know that you are for them unconditionally. Make sure they know that even if they make choices or decisions that disappoint you, that will never, ever change your love for them, that you could never love them any less. Let them know you love them. I love these words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And we might add it covers a multitude of mommy mistakes as well. Love covers it all. Well, ladies, there it is. There's our top ten ways to fail as a parent. All things we learn from David's poor choices as he dealt with his own children. If you are a mom or you're a grandmother, I hope this week's lesson spurs you on to take your role and the lives of your children and your grandchildren very seriously, very prayerfully, and it leads you to act intentionally and deliberately. I'm sure if David could have turned back the clock 
he would have done things differently with the hindsight of the things that he learned. You and I perhaps still have some time. Uh, those of you who still have children, children living under your roof, perhaps the most time of all. But even then, it's finite. When you were the young mom it, it, and, and the older women come to you and say, oh, enjoy those days while you can, and you nod, because I was there. I was there. Yes, I just want to sleep through the night till my body wakes up by itself. I know the time is passing. Older, wiser women tell me that, but right now I'm just exhausted. Well, I heard that from all those older, wiser women, and now I'm the old woman telling the young moms that. So the time is fleeting. You don't have forever. If we assume that they will be with you for 18 years and you want to think about how much time you have, 18 years, 52 weeks a year is 936 weeks. 936 weeks. That's exactly how many pennies are in this jar. 936 pennies in this jar. If I gave this to a, a mom of a newborn and every week she took one penny out, every Sunday afternoon, Seeing the pennies go down is a visual reminder of how much time you have left. I want to challenge you as a mom who still has children under your roof to maybe get your own jar. Put 90, 936 pennies in and then take their age and multiply by 52 and figure out how many weeks have passed. And then be, be humbled and challenged by the visual of how much time is left. If your child is nine years old, you can remove half of those. If you create your own jar... Take one out for each, for each week that's passed. If they're one-year-old, take out 52 pennies. If they're two, take out 104 and so on. It's time to act. Our, our truth for this week is the woman of God is an active parent. She loves, she disciplines, protects, communicates, apologizes. She's transparent. She prays, she teaches, she loves. Parenting is not passive. We must reject that ostrich approach. We can't just put our heads in the sand and hope for the best. If you are a mom who is finished with your parenting, if you're that grandmother that that's all gone and behind you, then you have the joy now of leaning into praying for your children. And that is the most powerful thing of all that you can do, to pray for your children and pray for your grandchildren. You know, ladies, sometimes we plant the seed, we do the work, we water, we weed, and, and we do everything right. And even then, some seeds just never seem to grow like they should. And as parents, we do the best we can with what we have and what we know at the time. We do our part, and then we absolutely must release them to the Lord. This week's text and lesson is not about making you feel any degree of guilt or regret, but just to trust your children to the Lord. You can do everything right, and they may still break your heart, but keep on praying and keep on hoping and keep on loving because their story, like your story, is still being written. It's still unfolding. God is not finished with them yet. The faithful prayers of a righteous mother or grandmother or great-grandmother will certainly avail much. And always keep in mind that the God who created them loves them even more than you do, and you know how much you love them. As we close in prayer today, if you are a mother or a grandmother or grandmother, great-grandmother raising children, if you have children that live under your roof that you are raising, I would like you to stand because I'd like to pray specifically for you as we wrap up this morning. So if you are a mom raising children, please stand by your table, okay? And I just want to tell you that even if they're 
in their teenage years, ever how old they are, I think your job in the 21st century is harder than the job we had, my generation and generations before me when we were raising ours. We didn't have the challenges of technology that you have. You have to be ever diligent, but God is ever faithful. And God loves you, and he loves your children. Ladies, if you uh, are still seated, I would like you to stand and gather around and lay hands on the women that are standing by your table as we close in prayer today. Ladies, let's pray together. Oh, God Almighty, you are the genius that thought up the way to, to fill the earth with children. You gave us children as little babies to love and nurture and care for and watch them to grow up. Father, we ask for forgiveness for the mistakes that we've made. And we know that if we are breathing and we're standing in this room, those mistakes are many. We know that you are ever faithful. We thank you and praise you that you love our children even more than we do. I want to pray especially today, first of all, for women that are hurting right now because they are estranged from their children. And today's lesson might bring a, a, no small degree of pain to them. And I pray that you would be the bomb that heals that hurting heart and you would let give them grace and kindness and, and alleviate any illegitimate guilt that they would take on. Give them that call just to keep on praying for their children. Father, for the young mommies that stood first, I pray for just the blessing and the equipping and the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Father, give them great wisdom and knowledge to know how to teach and train their children. Give them physical stamina for the challenges of rearing young children, the sleepless nights, the physical exhaustion. Let them be wise when they discipline their children. Let them be intentional and careful. Let them lean in and not shirk those hard responsibilities. Father, I pray that as, as these young moms love and discipline their children, that they would communicate well, that they would be willing to apologize, that they would be willing to share their own story, that they would learn to pray for their children as they go throughout the day, that they would teach their children the Word of God, that they would be immersed in the Word of God themselves, that they would know above, that their children would know above all that they love you and they love them. Father, we know that every relationship we have, whether that's a friendship, God, whether it's our marriage, our relationship with our children, whatever, that the health of every horizontal relationship is dependent upon our vertical relationship with you. So God, I just pray another gardening verse over all of us. In, in John 15, 5, for it challenges us to abide in you, that you are the vine and we are the branches, that every woman in this room would be committed to coming to you daily, to stay grafted into you, our vine, because we know that that's where the real growth and the transformation happens. God, let us fill up. Let us be equipped with the nurturing and the growing that comes from you and from your word, and let that so fill us up that we're able to live our lives and to do our job. Would you bless these women, especially the ones that are in a position to influence their children 
These children that they are raising will be the next generation that carry the gospel forward to a country that just feels like is, is turning from you. God, our society is ripe for revival, and we say bring it. We want to see your goodness in the land of the living. We pray for revival in our land, that as people keep looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and so many things that can never satisfy, Father, I pray that they would be hedged in and, and that we individually and collectively would finally look up and look to you to know that our hope and our satisfaction can only be found in the person of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, and it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.